praise. The question, I guess, was how do we reach excellence in praise? And we said that the, these words in Hebrew give us some insight. We talked about halal, to halal God, which is uh, to rave, uh, to sing, to act madly. We talked about yadah, which is to throw out a hand, just throwing out a spear. Some of us have done that this morning. We talked about shabak, to shout, a song of praise to God. We talked about zamar, to pluck the strings. Chris is doing that for us this morning. We talked about taudah, to extend hands in adoration by way of acceptance of a gift not yet received. We talked about Barak, to kneel, to bow, to bless. We talked about Tehillah, to sing your own song of praise, coming from your own life. This was excellent praise. And all this is for God. Praise is for God. Praise is for God because of who he is and what he's done. In fact, that's what praise is. Praise is what we offer to God as a response to who he is and what he's done because he created the world. Out of nothing, he spoke something into being. We praise him for that. We praise him for his creation. We praise him for his redemption. That his, Even though his creation got so lost, he didn't just screw it up and throw it away and start again. But he said, no, I'm going to make something beautiful of this. I'm going to make something beautiful out of this mess. And I'm going to use the very people who made the mess to bring about the restoration. We praise him for that. We praise him that he's patient in that way, that he's faithful, that he's compassionate, that he doesn't treat us as the scripture says according to how our sins deserve, you know? But as far a father's compassionate on his children, so is, so God is compassionate upon those he loves. We praise him for that. We praise him for his redemption, the climax of which we see in the cross. We're about to share that and celebrate that in this meal that we're going to share together. We praise him for Jesus, that he didn't stay distant and far off when we were in the midst of our trouble. That as, you know, as Paul says in Romans, but while we were still far off, Christ died for us. Very rarely would anyone be willing to die even for a good person, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners... Christ died for the ungodly. Amazing. We praise him for that. And we praise him for the restoration that we're awaiting. We, we, uh, we taudah him. We extend hands in adoration for the gift we've not yet received, which is what? The fulfilled and perfected creation. You know, you can praise him for that today. For what he's going to do. We can praise him for the renewal and the refreshing that's coming to Nottingham. Now, we can praise him for that. And we can praise him for already for the, for the gracious moment of acceptance that we'll hear when we appear before his judgment seat on the last day. Where we will hear him say, justified. For those who live in faith, who, who have faith in him, will hear the words, you are my beloved, my faithful servant. Come and receive the inheritance that's been laid up for you. We praise him for all of this stuff. We praise God because who he is. And what he's done. And yet, he's so good that praise isn't just beneficial to him. But what we find is that when we become people who habitually and regularly praise him, there are benefits not just for him, but for us too. What I want to look at this morning as we dive into Psalm 84, and you can open that again if you would. Keep it open. I want to ask the question and hopefully answer it. <laughs> what does praise do? Not what does it do for God, 
I think we looked at a bit of that last week, but what does it do for us? If we, if we become the kind of people who, who make it our habit to praise him, what might we expect to happen in our lives? And what we see in Psalm 84, just reading the first couple of verses again, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. This psalm, the first four verses, if you like this kind of thing, this might be helpful to you. The first four verses, verses 1 to 4, and also, in fact, verses 10 through 12, the last three verses, the, the psalm begins and ends with a song of praise. That's the structure, beginning and ending. It's like, well, it's not like a praise sandwich because the praise is the bread, but you know what I mean. We've got praise beginning and ending this psalm because this psalm is all about somebody's journey into the presence of God. In fact, it's about the people of God's journey into the presence of God. And that's what happens from verses five to seven. If you look, we pick up, uh, we'll go into this in more detail, but we see that uh, what's being described is a pilgrim's journey to Jerusalem, where the pilgrim gets into the presence of God to praise God. So we have a, a journey, and on either side of the journey, we have a song of praise. And the content of this journey, again, is all about, the content of the psalm is all about praise. How lovely is your dwelling place? How lovely one commentary said that this, this phrase, how lovely, it's the language of love poetry. How lovely. This isn't, this isn't like clinical language. It's not clinical at all. It is passionate. It is heart-centered. It's effusive. It's emotive language. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. What is lovely? The psalmist says that what is lovely, what is worthy of of praise is the dwelling place of God. He has in mind, or she has in mind, the temple. The place of God's presence. The place where God's people would gather to worship him. Now the thing about the temple is there was only one of them. And it was in Jerusalem, on the temple mount. It was in Jerusalem. And if you were lucky... If you were very, very lucky, about four festivals that Jewish people, Jewish males were uh, encouraged to go to every year. But if you were lucky as a regular run-of-the-mill Jewish person, if you were lucky, you'd get that once a year. How much expectation, how much desire, how much passion would you have to go to that place where you knew you were guaranteed an encounter with God? You knew you could go there and have your sins forgiven. You knew you could be in the presence of God's people. You'd get to be in that beautiful space to experience the life, the buzz of that place. That level of passion is what we see reflected in this psalm. How lovely is the dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints. The soul here depicted, the word soul here, we often think of like the bit you can't see that floats up to heaven after we die. Actually, that's not true at all. The soul here, this is, he's talking about the, the, the life, the whole life. My, my, my living being, if you like, is what's being, my whole being, the psalmist is saying, my, my whole being yearns, even faints. One commentator said, this, it's like the psalmist is saying, I pine with longing. I pine with longing for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out. The physical bit and the non-physical bit, the psalmist is saying, cry out for the living God. 
Another translation of this uh, psalm talks about sings of my, my, my soul, my heart, my flesh sing for joy. Actually, that's not right at all. The cry here, when it says my, my soul cries out, actually the cry is not necessarily a happy cry. It's a cry of desperation, of longings. Ah, it's that kind of cry. It's a cry of longing, of desperation, of urgency. My heart, my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow, I love just a bit of ornithology. Is that what it's called? Talk about birds. I love a bit of a bird chat in the middle of a psalm. My, even the sparrow has found a home, the psalmist said. The picture here is of the temple. You see, the temple wouldn't have a roof. There'd be open courts above. So you could look up and see the sky. And, and what the picture here is in the courts where, where you'd be in the outer courts of the temple, the open roof, perfect place for a sparrow to nest. The psalmist is basically saying, I am, I am jealous. I am well jealous of the sparrows who get to be in God's presence all the time. I wish I could be there. I want to be like them, nesting in the presence of God all the time. Happy, the psalmist says. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. It's the first of three beatitudes in the psalm. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Happy, this word means an inner state of bliss. Those, the psalmist is saying this, those who are in the presence of God experience fullness. They experience shalom. Life as it's truly intended to be. Notice two things about this psalm so far, verses 1 to 4. I want you to see two things. Firstly, this psalm is all heart. Everything that's been said so far is felt deeply. Like I said, this is not clinical. You know, biblical faith is not clinical faith. You know, if you want to be a biblical follower of Jesus, you can't do that and stay in your mind. You can't do that without engaging with your mind, by the way, or an anti-intellectual at all. You cannot do that without your mind. That's an organ given by God for his glory. But you can't do that with just engaging with your mind. That This psalm is full of passion. It's full of desire. This psalm, it's, it's, it's just a heart cry. It is an overflow of a heart on fire for God. Plain and simple. It's all heart. This person has a deep, a rich, an intense, a furious longing for God and his presence. Point one. Point two. Praise is where that is shaped. Verse four. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. It's in the presence of God. It's in the temple. It's in the place of God's presence where he is praised that the psalmist has caught fire for God. His heart has been shaped for and by God. And he is therefore desperate to get back to that place again. Praise is where this takes place. Point one, praise. What does praise do? Praise reorders our affections. Praise reorders our affections. I remember uh, just after I'd come back, or God had led me back to faith after being totally lost during my university years, I ended up in London and I went to this wonderful church and it was just the beginning of this beautiful season of my life where God was just so gracious to me. 
Um, so in that time I met Amy, in fact it was on this very week, I'm about to describe that Amy and I first really started to hang out and start to talk and it's the beginning of our own story, um, it was 10 years ago, 11 years ago now. I remember playing football during this, it was on this church week away, I went to Swanwick of all places, some of you have been there, it's just in Derbyshire. Who knew good things could come out of Swanwick? It had. It was amazing. I was playing football that week, and I, I, um, I turned my ankle while playing football, and it was really painful. And uh, I went to sit on the side, uh, sidelines, and, and this guy came up to me, and I'd never seen him before, and his name was Rob, and I've since referred to him as Dangerous Rob, because <laughs> he's one of those people that had fury in his eyes, not anger. He wasn't angry, he was but a furious sense of passion and longing for God. And it was like, looking into his eyes, it felt unsafe. Not unsafe in a bad way. He was so full of God uh, that it felt unsafe in a good way. It felt like he was carrying something of the passion and fire of God with him. And he looked at me in the eyes, and I thought he was going to come and pray for me, because that's what Christians do. He laid his hand on my foot, and he waited. He put his head down, stared intensely at the floor. And I was like, do you want to, do you want to pray? You know, are you going to do this? And then after a while, probably about two or three minutes, an awkwardly long period of time, he looked up in my eyes and he said this, looked at me right in the eyes with that furious blue eyes and he says, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? It was a question I was completely unprepared for. I didn't have an answer. I, initially, I started to scramble around for, for answers, and I said, uh, I, 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 I want to play football. <laughs> what do you want? What do you want? That moment was so profound. I didn't understand it at all when it was happening. It took, it's taken me years to figure out what was going on there. What was going on there was that God was addressing me. God is addressing every one of us this morning. And this is the question he's addressing me with. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? My belief is that the most important thing about us as people is what we want. The most crucial thing in our lives is, is what we want. That's what makes us who is it. It's what we want that drives us to intense acts of devotion. You know, we want to see our kids flourish if we have them. We, we want to see our career prospered and so we drive ourselves to get up in the middle of the night. Or we work every hour that God sends or whatever. It's our desire that shapes us most deeply. God addresses us with the question, what do we want? The psalmist here wants God above any other thing. Are we those people who want God before anything else? Church, what do we want? What do you want? It's my birthday today. You get a birthday wish, don't you? What my birthday wish? But what would your, if you, if you, if you knew you could have one thing granted to you, whatever it would be, not, th not three as Aladdin. <laughs> Not that generous here, but you could have one. And it can't be that you get more wishes. What would it be? The psalmist says very clearly, it would be the presence of God. 
How do we cultivate more of this desire for God? How do we point our affection towards God, not towards other things? Well, here's the truth. You become, or you, be, you desire what you praise. You be, just as we become like what we worship, so we, become, we begin to desire what we praise. The things that we praise, we will develop an affection for, an affinity with. I'm not talking about flattery, contentless praise. I'm saying, no, if we, be, if we praise something or someone habitually, we'll be, we will grow in desire for them or for that person. What do you want? How would you know what you want? Let me break it down. Where do you spend your time? Where do you point your affection? Where do you spend your money? You want to know what you want? Print your bank statement out. It's a good guide right there. (laughs) For every one of us, what do we want? How do we grow in desire for God? You know, one thing that we do is we gather here every Sunday. We get here into his presence and we just praise him. We praise him. Even if we don't feel like it. Some of us, we crawl up this hill spiritually every week. We have, maybe you're going through a hard season. You feel like you're crawling up this hill. Come into this place every week. Praise him. Something will change. You, over the course of days, some of you moments, some of you weeks, it's months, it's years, you will become somebody who desires him more and more and more. And the more you praise him, the more you desire him, the more desire you desire him, the more you'll feel free to praise him. It's a virtuous cycle. This is what the psalmist shows us. Praise reorders our affection. Secondly, praise restores our perspective. Look at the end of the psalm, verses 10 through 12. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold. From those whose way of life is blameless, praise restores our perspective. The psalm uh, begins with uh, a discussion of all about the heart, all about desire, but here it ends with questions, matters of value or priority. A perspective shift has gone on with this psalmist because of this habit, this desire, this um, perspective on praise. It shaped everything else around them. What do we see? We have an altered view on time. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. One thing that we see in our culture, and it really vexes me because we see it in the church as well, is like uh, the desire to carry on living for, for longer and longer and longer periods without sort of a discussion about quality of life or meaning in life. So life itself, longevity, duration of life becomes an end in itself. Before any question of what am I here to do? What am I here to contribute? What meaningful thing has God placed in me that I might share? How might I serve? What is it God might want to offer through me? How is it he might want to pour himself out through my life? The psalmist has a a completely transformed uh, perspective on time. That's shaped by praise. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I could say more on that. I don't have time. (laughs) The psalm has an altered view on security and status. The psalmist has an altered view on security and status. What does he say? He say, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. And you're thinking of like a bouncer, right? I'd rather be a bouncer in God's house than dwell in the tents of the wicked. It's not actually, what's being described here is not an office. It's not a role necessarily. He's talking actually about proximity. 
In other words, the psalmist is saying, and I'm saying he just to simplify it, maybe he or she, I have no idea. But the psalmist is saying, I'd rather be peripheral in God's house than be right at the heart of the tents of the wicked, than dwell, than hang out in the tents of the wicked. In other words, and this is my translation, not even Eugene Peterson says this, I'd rather be a nobody in God's house than a somebody anywhere else. I'd rather be a nobody where God is than somebody somewhere else. The psalmist has an altered perspective on status. And therefore, the psalmist consequently and connectedly has an altered perspective on security. Security for the psalmist is not dwelling in the tents of the wicked, being right at the heart of the action. Security is being wherever God is. In life, in death, in life, I'm confident and covered by the power of your great love. We sang that this morning, didn't we? What does Paul say in Philippians? To live is Christ, to die is gain. And we read that today and we're like, what? You nutter. Because we're conditioned in our culture to hang on to life at all costs. Rather than to recognize that beyond life there is something so much more beautiful. Life everlasting, where we can be not just peripheral in God's presence, but right at the heart of what he is doing, right at the heart of where he is, that there is hope beyond the grave because Jesus is raised from the dead. As we praise God for that, our perspective is altered. Friends, there's no way to catch that unless you're in God's presence. Me saying it's not going to do anything for you. You've got to get in God's presence. You've got to look him in the eye and he will show you. Altered view on status, an altered view on blessing. Oh, how we need this. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. Who are the favored people in our culture? The celebrities. That's what, we, that's what our culture says, you know. The furore this week about Taylor Swift's social media went black. There's a blackout, folks. I don't know if you know this. She's releasing new music. Wow, Taylor has spoken. Or sung or whatever. We revere celebrities. We revere people with worldly and earthly power. It has always been thus. But the church, we have an altered view on blessing. What is blessing? The Lord bestows favor and honor. And how does he bestow it? He bestows it in his presence and we experience it when, he, when we praise him. The good life, church, is the God life. You make it your habit to praise him. You get into his presence. You experience his goodness. You know what true favor is. You know what real blessing is. What makes us Christians is that we value differently. I think what would make the greatest impact in the culture is if the, church, the, the culture saw, the wider culture saw the church eschewing, pushing away, uh, neglecting, disregarding the things that the culture values the most. You know, this used to happen. One of the earliest things that caused the growth of the church in the Roman culture was, was this. When people caught plagues, which they did all the time, people lived very close together, particularly in places like Rome, people would catch the plague and they would throw their own people out into the street to die, their own members of the family, because they were so scared of catching the plague. What happened? The Christians went out to care for the dying, not just their own dying, but the dying, uh, the pagan 
pagan people who were dying as well, people who weren't part of the Christian community. Why? Because they didn't value life in the same way. They didn't see the same perspective. They had an altered view on all these things. What if we did, had a different view, a different value on time, a different value on status and security, a different value on blessing? Finally, finally, we see that praise renews the world around us. I need that, actually. Thanks, love. Verses 5 through 7. Praise renews the world around us. What do we read? We read this. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they've passed through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. They go from strength to strength. Praise doesn't just fortify us, although it does that as we've just discussed, but praise does something to the surrounding world. Praise does something to the people around you. Praise does something to the world in which you are set. Praise, regularly practicing praise in your workplace will change your workplace. How do we know? It says as they pass through the valley of Baca, it's a deserted place. A desert place, as they pass through the desert place. Other translations call this the valley of tears. As they pass through, pass through the place of suffering, the place of loss, the place of grief, those who pr- praise make it a place of springs, a place of plenty. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength. What's being pictured here is the journey to Jerusalem. And the journey to God's presence for these people making this journey, singing this song as they go, would have included the journey through lots of difficult, barren uh, places, valleys of Bakar. Church, for us, the, 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 the journey to praise every single week and in our lives we see the journey to praise, the journey to God's presence includes always the journey through difficult places, the journey through places of suffering, the journey through places of loss, the journey through places of grief. As we practice praise, even in those places. We're going to talk more about those places next two weeks' time. As we practice praise, even in those places. We find not just that we come to life in those places, but that the world around us comes to life in those places. Our model for this is Joseph. Even in prison, he's open to what God is doing. And at the end of Genesis, he's able to say the last words of Genesis, you made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. He says, what you, what you my brothers, intended for harm, God intended for good. Our model for this is Jesus. He, when cursed, he blessed. And so even on the cross, he's able to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. His hands outstretched in love for the world. And God, through him, pours out blessing. Not just for the people he forgave then, but for every person since, you and I, that he forgives even today. God restores the world through praise. What we're doing this morning, church, is not peripheral in God's plan for Nottingham. I want you to know that when you gather here every Sunday to praise God, it's not, it's not something peripheral. It's not something that only benefits us. What God is doing here is to set up a, a, a well, a pool. And as we praise him, as we make this our rhythm, like a whirlpool, you know, you walk around a pool that's small enough with enough people and you walk around in the same direction, it causes a whirlpool. And anyone who jumps in can catch up with the momentum. That's like what's happening here, except that water is going to flow out these doors into the city and it's going to renew people who don't even come into this place. 
And praise does that. I close with this. A story of a man called Robert Cornwall who was pastoring a, a church, a small church in Salem, Oregon when he approached uh, the directors of the state mental institution with an offer to do part-time counselling. His first assignment was Building 37, an area which housed severe um, mentally ill patients. On his first day, the guard let him into a room filled with deranged, half-clothed patients. There was human excrement everywhere. When he tried to talk to the inmates, all he got were groans, moans, and demonic laughter. And the Holy Spirit prompted him to sit in the middle of the room and for a full hour sing, Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Do that for an hour. At the end of the session, end of the first day, he saw no response. During his second visit, he again sat on the floor and sang the simple song about Jesus' love. The third week, about 20 minutes into the session, a lady began to circle him like a dog circles its prey. Robert continued to sing. Finally, the lady began to sing softly with him. Over the weeks, one after another joined him in singing this song of God's love. By the end of the first month, 36 of the 37 patients had been transferred to a self-care ward. In less than a year, all but two were released from the mental institution. Power of praise. Not just to reorder your affections. Not just to renew your mind to change your priorities. But to change the world around you. To change the world within you and to change the world around you. Nottingham is waiting for the church to praise with all of their lives. This city is crying out for a church that knows how to praise God, a God who is always worthy of all of our praise.